the company is incentivized to extract as much profit as they can from the consumer. And once they get to a scale like a Google or Facebook or whatever, they really don't give a shit about the consumer and they don't have to. All right, folks, today we have Chris Berniski, founder of Placeholder, early crypto analyst dating back to, I think 2015, but he might correct me, at ARC, uh, author of Crypto Assets, which was a really impactful book for me back in 2017. Chris, before we jump in, I need to give a quick shout out to Luca, who's the sponsor of the show. They've been supporting this since day one. Also, shout out to Blockworks. We're hosting a uh, a Bretton Woods conference for anyone who wants to talk about the future of money. We're bringing 250 folks together in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, August 11th through 13th. You guys can use code EMPIRE to get 5% off. Tickets are on our website. Cool. Now that we've got that out of the way, Chris, welcome to Empire. It's uh, really nice to have you. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Jason. Of course. Um, I don't know. I'm really excited to have you. you um, I remember intimately... December 2017, my co-founder and I, Mike, we went to a Staples and we uh, haggled with Staples to get a whiteboard to draw up what would become Blockworks, the you know media company that you know Mike and I are now running. And I remember, I think it was August of uh, August of 2017, you and Joel started writing and talking about Placeholder. And then, if my memory serves me right, in December of 2017, you clo- closed that first fund. So. I don't know. It's been fun. Uh, I'm really excited to have you here because we've been following your writings closely. Awesome. Yeah, it's been a journey to create Placeholder, and I'm sure you've been on your own journey uh, with Blockworks. Totally. It's been a good one. So um, I thought maybe you could give a quick background on yourself and Placeholder. I Just from talking to some of our audience, nearly everyone who listens to the show knows you, but if you just want to give a quick background, uh, and then we can jump in. Sure. Um, I first came across, I'm, I'm going to just give my crypto background, um, though, I guess I am more than just crypto. I'll, I'll give a little <laughs> bit of, of personal background. Um, I was born in Ecuador, lived there till I was two, I was in Malaysia until I was six, I was in Austin, Texas till I was 11, then Hawaii until 18. And then from there, um, bounced around through college, um, nationally and internationally. Uh, so was raised with an international background um, by two educators, uh, had a pretty heavy disdain for finance, still do. Um, and in 2012, um, came across Bitcoin through the Silk Road, found it fascinating, was a college student at the time. Uh, and that, that showed me the power of a good application because at the time the Silk Road was the main application of Bitcoin. And for me, it was more tangible and more understandable um, than Bitcoin itself. I I hadn't started digging into what money really meant, Um, but the idea of an unstoppable marketplace where anyone can exchange anything is of course powerful. Um, But even though those being powerful ideas uh, didn't really stick with me until 2014. I joined ARK Invest, uh, which at the time was just a small startup, startup firm. ARK didn't have any ETFs, had zero AUM, and we were just pulling the strategies together. And um, I was covering things like Internet of Things, cybersecurity, uh, big, big data, which is now machine learning, and ended up picking up cryptocurrencies 
And in late 2014, early 2015, Grayscale approached ARK and said, hey, we've got this thing called the uh, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, and we think you can put it in your ETFs. And so once that happened, it really started to open up room for me to go deeper into, into Bitcoin. Kathy and Brett Winton, the director of research at ARK, both had a understanding and appreciation for the power, so the, the power of this, this tech. Um, and so they were already very early to be open to the idea um, at a investment firm on Wall Street. But once you know, Grayscale gave us more, call it investment rationale, um, I basically opened up a year-long investigation of Bitcoin that included not just the investment opportunity, but things like the long-term security of the network. Uh, and that culminated in ARK investing in, in Bitcoin through the Grayscale Trust in September, October of 2015. I remember Bitcoin was around 200 at the time, and ARK's timing was fantastic. Uh, I think in November of 15, BTC doubled from 200 to 400, uh, and ARK was the only public fund manager to hold the asset. And then from there, um, 2016 is when I met Joel, who's my, my founding partner at Placeholder, um, alongside Brad Burnham, who, who has also helped us get everything off the ground. And 2016, I also met Jack Tater, who's the co-author on Crypto Assets. Um, and Crypto Assets became its whole own journey uh, once Jack and I got a book deal from McGraw-Hill in late 16. And Joel and I simultaneously were basically brainstorming Placeholder. And both of those, Crypto Assets and Placeholder, came to fruition in 2017. What was the most surprising thing about working with Kathy Wood at ARC that some people might not know? Uh, there's a lot of surprising things. I, I think... So, I, I, Kathy almost single-handedly changed my perspective on how finance can be used. Because when I met Kathy, she, she offered me a job early on and I turned her down. Um, I said, I don't want to work in finance. I don't want to be in front of a computer all day long. I don't want to live in New York City. And she left me with the line of, well, you know, if you're so against it, maybe you should do something to change it. But I was still like, all my examples of finance at that time were more like the Stanford types that are born and bred to be in finance, um, which uh, culturally I just did not get along with, um, and so I wasn't pulled. But um, Kathy has this mantra of allocating capital to its best and highest use, and she really spends a lot of time herself mentally, but also with her research team, understanding on a five, ten year plus basis um, what are the emerging technologies and um, what is undervalued and therefore what merits um, more allocation of capital. And so that as a, um, as a service, as a key service that's provided within the economic machine, she opened my eyes to, um, less, less intellectual, but more just as a person, um, she's just so gracious, you know, like any of her employees would speak to and continue to speak to how much she cares about everyone who works for her. Um, and even though she's a mega star now, um, it hasn't gone to her head, um, and I've seen it go to other people's heads when they get that kind of success. 
in 2015 and 2016 while you were at ARC, uh, 2015, 2016, and actually 2017 as well, you talked a lot about Bitcoin as this global settlement layer. And then as I was reading your work, it became Bitcoin and ETH might be this global, global settlement layer. And then yeah. starting in 2018, it became, or actually, actually really starting in 2019, it was, okay, actually ETH is a global settlement layer. Maybe Bitcoin is this store of value, this other thing. Can you walk me through like your, per, specific to Bitcoin, like your progression of Bitcoin sure. and how that's changed over time? Yeah. So it starts, the, the real intellectual digging starts in 2014. Um, and it's, it's hard to um, imagine what that time was like now from where we sit in crypto when there's so many things going on in crypto. But if you go back to 2014, Ethereum was just an idea, um, right? Uh, announced in January of 2014. And Ethereum wouldn't launch until summer of 15. And then even once it launched, you know, as we're seeing with current layer ones, uh, it takes a long time to build out. So the the vast majority of um, intellectual fertility was around Bitcoin. So like in terms of meetups or conversations or forums, that was the main thing. Um, and that was also in a period when Bitcoin was still so early in its life that um, all the dreams that Ethereum is now manifesting were still possible for Bitcoin, right? So like you had Counterparty, um, which was really supposed to open up the programmability um, and the colored, coins, the colored coins idea uh, of Bitcoin, which has really been played out in the ERC-20 uh, uh, model of Ethereum. But so early on, it was like, okay, Bitcoin is programmable money. Um, we can do all kinds of things. We can layer on uh, complexity on top of it while maintaining the base layer security. And, and so that's when the world felt most open to me with, with Bitcoin. Um, and then I, I, I remember, I think it was 2015, we started having the block size debate and things started to get a little bit more toxic and Gavin and Dreesen, I think, got exiled at that point, and Mike Hearn had quit, and there just started to be more animosity. And also in mid-2015, you then had the launch of Ethereum, and, and I really credit, and Charlie Schramm and I talked about this in his podcast, but I credit the launch of Ethereum with creating to like Bitcoin toxicity, really that, that reaction to the threat of Ethereum. So in that period, a lot changed and there, there was this reactive kind of um, component of the Bitcoin community that emerged, which was a turnoff to me and started to push me into exploring Ethereum. And, and 2016 was really like the year of exploring Ethereum a lot intellectually, but still most of my work, public work being Bitcoin related, because that was also the main thing that ARK had, had invested in, right? It, like Ethereum really wasn't investable at the institutional scale um, at, at that point in time. And, and now if you fast forward all the way to present day, well, actually before I go to present day, I remember when Coinbase and I did, um, Adam White at, at Coinbase, who's now at Backed, when we did the new asset class paper and we were polling all of Coinbase's user numbers, an early sign of the means of exchange versus store of value shift was actually the percent, the, there's a chart in that 
um, paper that shows a decreasing amount of Coinbase's users each year using Bitcoin as a means of exchange. And effectively, each year more of them using it as a store of value. And now, like if you zoom out, I believe Bitcoin's velocity has collapsed. And so there's, there's no doubt in my mind now that Bitcoin is primarily a digital gold. It serves as a store of value. We'll see about the means of exchange, but I am skeptical um, given its, its supply issuance model of it being a great means of exchange and, and unit of account, and those two are, are intertwined. Um, but back then in 2014-15, we didn't have all those data points. There was still the dream of merchants accepting it and you know it routing payments internationally. And there are still people working on that dream, and I, I never like to count out dreamers entirely, but at least my mind has gone to, okay, Bitcoin is digital gold. The community is very defensive in that direction. Ethereum is the place that is very open to innovation and experimentation and is really the programmable settlement layer. So Wences Casares of Zappo, I don't know if you ever worked with him, yeah. but he's got this paper. I, I mean, first off, phenomenal guy. Second, um, he's got this paper about how much you should allocate to Bitcoin. And in it, like two or maybe three quarters of the way down, he talks about Bitcoin as a global se uh, settlement layer and that Bitcoin is not actually competing with, it's not competing with the yen, it's not competing with the dollar, it's not competing with commodities, but rather in maybe, let's call it 10 to 30 years, you would have a world where uh, Bitcoin is kind of this monetary settlement layer in that everything is like quoted in Bitcoin could be one starting point. So it's not, you know, how much is the yen today? Oh, it's, it's this price in dollars. Uh, it's this price in, um, in francs, but rather... How much is oil? It's priced in Bitcoin. How much is the yen? It's priced in Bitcoin. So you'd, you'd have this kind of global, before even a global settlement layer, it's a global like reference point. So mm -hmm. do you, and, but that was three years ago, right? Do you agree with Wences that this is still a possibility? Or is this kind of like reference point, then global settlement layer? You, you think that's, or that's not a feasible, you know, feasible anymore with Bitcoin? Well, I, I guess I just think the world is more multivariable than that, right? Like assets are, everyone has their their favorite assets or like there's the nationalistic fiat currencies. Now there's Ethereum and BTC competing for money. And um, humanity is not going to converge upon just a, a singular thing um, just because a very committed group of OGs have created an elegant intellectual argument for why that should be the case. And so I think in terms of settlement, um, the settlement layer will come down to what has the most capacity and security. Um, and that's a function of scale, scaling the technology. And then also the long, long run, it's the fees that go to the validators or miners, right? And this is where Bitcoin has a problem um, in the, or, or, or at least a problem that's not being fully addressed yet uh, of you know how are transaction fees in an asset that's decreasing in, in velocity going to supplant the inflation subsidy that has secured Bitcoin to date? And um, Ethereum has has a solution for that, right? Um, just just so, to make sure I understand that though, Chris, are, are you yeah. saying that by is that more talking about not right now, but let's say by twenty one forty? Right, right now there's a breakdown of fees and, and, and minor revenue that they're getting. 
And that as yes. the minor revenue goes down and you're not securing anything because there are less blocks and or no blocks that are getting created, the fees will ultimately be higher than even your daily credit card transactions. So therefore that value prop of the fees goes away. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. So, so this was one of the earliest white papers at ARC. There's a 2015. You talked white about paper. it in like a 2015 or 2016 paper. Yeah. At it's Arc. called um, Bitcoin Securing the Network. And we, we basically, so the very simplified idea is um, Bitcoin's fee model or revenue model to miners is two part. There's what I think of as an inflation subsidy, and that's just the creation of new BTC to miners, which is the bootstrapping mechanism. And early days, that was 100% of the revenue for miners. But as Bitcoin tapers off in its inflation, that means less of this inflation subsidy to miners, ultimately zero to miners. And so far out, you mentioned 2140, which is basically when 100% of BTC has been issued. At that point, we need to have switched to 100% of minor revenues coming from transaction fees. And so in order for that to happen, you need to see a lot of people transacting in Bitcoin. Um, the, the securing the network paper, there were some flaws with the model. It was still useful. And we, we basically came out with, you need a steady state 1.2% fee um, all in, in order to, to protect Bitcoin from economically viable attacks. Um, it was flawed because we looked at it from um, dollar transacted, whereas Bitcoin is um, assessing fees per the um, unit, the, the amount of space that you're taking up in a block. So it's not dollar transaction, it's, it's kilobyte of the transaction size. Um, but all, you know, zooming out from those, those complexities, it still goes back to um, who is paying to use these networks and, and who is using them and how are they using them. And Bitcoin's predominant use is hodling, whereas Ethereum's predominant use, I would say, is much more transacting. And so if I were to bet on something becoming a global settlement layer for multivariable value, I would bet more on Ethereum than on Bitcoin. Uh, I know you, we're going to get away from Bitcoin in a second. It's just really interesting to me, this first part, because you've been in the, in the industry for so long. Would you say that, and you're also an investor, so this next question I'm curious about, is the risk reward of Bitcoin still enticing to you? Yes. At these prices, in the 30K range, yes. Um, I, I think you have to be careful with Bitcoin cycles, right? Like I consider us to be mid-cycle here. Um, good entry point, mid-cycle. Um, that said, at the bottom of the next bear, you know, the 200-week moving average, which has been the bottom in 2015 and 1819 right now is like 13K and change. Um, Another good psychological bottom is the previous cycle's high, so that would be 20K. Um, and then also just keeping an eye on the, the marginal cost to produce one, one BTC. And so often we have a convergence of like the 200 week with the marginal cost of production, potentially with the prior high. Um, but I would keep an eye out for the convergence of really strong supports, both psychological and fundamental in the next bear. And there is a chance that that bottom is lower than these current prices. That said, I, I expect you know, a grand finale uh, to this current cycle. 
I, I'm yeah. not in the camp of like, we're descending into a massive bear market right now. Yeah. Uh, so another thing that I've been thinking a lot about is if, so I know you're in the camp that ETH is really exciting and there's all these amazing DeFi projects and DAOs and we'll, and we'll talk about that. If ETH starts to, like if the flippening happens and ETH becomes bigger than Bitcoin or even just ETH becomes more of a, um, a way that people get into crypto, right? Like, like for the past several years, if you wanted to enter the industry, you bought Bitcoin, then you realize that there's something else out there. So you bought ETH and then you went from ETH into like altcoins or DeFi or whatever you want to call or ICOs or whatever you want to call them. Right. But now we're seeing this trend where people aren't even buying Bitcoin to start. They're going straight into ETH. And so does, does that eliminate or mitigate the impact of the four year cycles? It does. Um, and I was just having this conversation with a friend yesterday. Eventually, so I, I, I joke about like the algorithm just predicts the top every four years. And, um, you know, it's there's some truth to it, but it's it's part joke as well. And uh, eventually we that's that the neatness of that cycle cannot sustain. Um, it might sustain for, for this cycle, TBD, um, but not forever. And as you're pointing out, the entry point for a lot of people now is ETH because if they want NFTs, they need ETH to get NFTs. Or if they want to participate in DeFi, they need ETH for that um, or any of the other use cases um, that Ethereum provides. And so interestingly, like early on, if you looked at, at how Bitcoin had a really entrenched position in, in the crypto space, it was really following the commodity theory of, of money path, where like if you read Marx, the commodity theory of money is just the main commodity that people use becomes the most liquid into all the other commodities. And that was exactly what BTC was early on because we didn't have good exchanges. We didn't have good fiat on ramps and off ramps. And so you had a lot of trading of the alts, the alts at the time into BTC and a lot of people using BTC charts and like ETH BTC is now, is now a thing kind of from that era and people still trade based off of the BTC charts. But that, um, that position of BTC has weakened with stablecoins, and people use stablecoins a lot more now as the trading pair. And simultaneous to that weakening, you've had Ethereum developing its own commodity theory of money uh, use case as it grows all of these economies, right? And it is the, the bloodline of liquidity to all the economies that run on Ethereum. And so, and, and I think that, like that is only strengthening for ETH while BTC's commodity theory of money positioning is only weakening. Hmm. Yeah, now folks just use Tether, USDC, ETH yeah. instead of BTC as that base pair. Yeah, now all of that said, I am not bearish BTC, right? And this is where like I get into fights with, with Bitcoin maxis because like early that's on, your like caveat for like the Twitter crowd that's going to listen to this. Like. <laughs> well, like it, it's it hasn't been an easy journey for me because early on, um, you know, I did consider myself part of the Bitcoin community. And then there were a bunch of like, you know, public fights and just hassle in, in my mind, unnecessary hassle around my intellectual curiosity to explore other things. And so now I still have friends who are borderline Bitcoin maxis or like very you know, focus on, on Bitcoin, but by and large, I'm, you know, on the, the outer edges of that community and much more 
central uh, within the Ethereum community and exploring other communities. So that that hasn't been a fun process, and I think it was unnecessary, but it is what it is. All that said, I still think BTC is fascinating, and and I see it as like a um, a macroeconomic shelling point. And and I think the thing I most the single thing I most so Bitcoin's strength is its simplicity, right? And and that. That ETH does not have. ETH is much, much more complex and will always remain that way. But what I'm most excited to watch play out with BTC is if we get another Central or South American country to endorse BTC like El Salvador has, um, BTC starts to become a shelling point potentially for Latin America to take revenge on the dollar. Um, because the only currency that has consistently been stronger than the dollar over the last 10 years is BTC. And I, I think given its supply curve and what's going on with it, you can continue to expect that for the next 10 years or so. And if you go back in time and study like, I, I think I actually got this from the Bitcoin standard. Um, in the 19th century, India and China made big mistakes in betting their national reserves on silver rather than gold. But then as gold appreciated relative to silver, they lost a bunch of purchasing power. The opportunity for Latin America is the opposite of that, of if they bet on BTC, develop large reserves by, by producing exports and receiving BTC, and then if BTC gets to gold parity, that's a 20x from here to get to gold parity. And so then they have just massively grown their national treasuries, um, and then it increases their purchasing power in, in the global landscape. And, and there's a type of poetic justice to that, right? After the 20th century of loans to Latin American countries that they basically couldn't repay, that were often dollar denominated, um, and that you know have, have crippled some of those economies, to be able to coordinate around Bitcoin um, to rise again and take a form of revenge on the dollar, I, I think is, is really fascinating. And I don't see another monetary instrument out there in the world that could provide that kind of coordination service uh, for those nations. Yeah. Uh, let, let's talk macro for a second. So one of the first questions that came to mind when we scheduled this interview is I wanted to talk about, so you, so you come from this ba uh, background starting at ARC and you're traditional and I know you were anti-finance, but they dragged you in and you had this traditional background and macro, the macro tailwinds right now point to Bitcoin, right? Like I listened to this interview that you did in April or May of 2020, and you're talking about the macro tailwinds for Bitcoin and everyone wants to connect basically macro and crypto by just saying, okay, governments are printing all this money. So there's this inflation hedge asset called Bitcoin. You should buy Bitcoin and a lot of funds like Paul Tudor Jones and every, you know, everyone jumped on this bandwagon and I agree with them, but there are other big macro tailwinds like meme stocks and social media and data and privacy. And no one is really connecting those macro tailwinds to ETH and to DeFi right now. And or I don't Zcash. know, I, I, like, I, I, yeah, or Z, I, and I just want to see like, if you agree with that statement or if you think I'm missing something there. I, so I think that Culture is coming our way, but it takes a while for culture to shift. Culture shifts faster than ever before, um, given the dissemination of information on the internet, but um, still still takes time. And 
crypto is still complex and nerdy and scary and hasn't been been candy coated um, all over the place. So if I look at Bitcoin, I agree that um, as a financial instrument, it's the one that is most in Wall Street's eye, right? Or like I really see um, it's kind of like Weirdly, Bitcoin appear, appeals to the financial types and Ethereum appeals to the technology types. Um, and so Bitcoin has cemented itself within that realm. But there is a nuance here of um, it's set up to be an inflation hedge, but it is still a risk asset because it's a juvenile uh, inflation hedge, right? It's um, a little bit over 10 years old. So when there's the fear of Fed hiking rates and, you know, growth equities get sold off, Bitcoin goes with it. And so that started to, I think, break a bit of that narrative in Q2 when people were like, wait, there's there's fear of inflation, there's fear of the Fed hiking rates and Bitcoin is selling off. Like it's doing the opposite of what we expected it to do. And the reason it's doing that is because it's a risk asset. So I think for me that that experience cemented, okay, this is still more in the risk asset realm alongside ETH and all the other crypto assets. And so, so long as credit is cheap, so long as people are bored at home, so long as, you know, meme stocks and coordination through Reddit is a thing, all those groups are going to find crypto in different ways. Um, And like, and, and we're also seeing examples of those, those groups are, pushing the limits of traditional finance and traditional finance is extremely uncomfortable with it. Right. And so then you get, get situations like what happened with Robin hood where, you know, I'm sure there were, there were reasons like economic reasons for that, that happening. Like it, it, it's, it probably wasn't malice or conspiracy theory. It was, um, you know, I, I think economically based, but the takeaway for the masses was, you know, Robinhood caved to their shareholders and the big market makers and screwed over the little guy. And it's enough of that happening um, that will then push people into being like, well, we need to use these crypto systems because, you know, they're like crypto is an underdog technology. Um, and so the, the more that you have people becoming disenfranchised and seeing the ways that the existing system favors the incumbents, the more they will just shift over. Um, yeah. to crypto. Um, so I was, re- I was rereading your 2017 placeholder thesis last night and it actually gave me some crazy flashbacks to 2017 when I was reading it being like, oh my God, maybe this thing is real. Maybe I should quit my job and go full time with this. Um, but there's, there's this one part that stands out and you're just talking about like in the 1950s, the transistor collapse, the production, it collapsed the production cost of electronics and it re- which replaced expensive vacuum tubes with smaller, cheaper and more reliable switches, which gave birth to the modern computer industry. And then you walk us right. through the hardware, software, data, and then crypto. networks. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. And uh, the end, the end of that is where we're at kind of right now, which, which is, um, I'm just going to read it directly. You said the business. Well, here, of... here, here, I, I can paraphrase it. And, okay. and Joel Monegro deserves more credit for this exploration than I do. But the basic idea is that um, open standards collapse the costs of um, existing technologies, which then allows a new layer of value creation to come in. So the exploration 
that we went through and, and really led by Joel was, you know, hardware started off proprietary. IBM dominated that market, proprietary systems, but then it was the microprocessor around 1970 that was an open standard that collapsed the costs of producing these machines and then led to a vast proliferation of people producing hardware. That then, the, the production of that hardware and decreasing those costs through the open standard that was the microprocessor allowed the, the uh, entrance of Microsoft and proprietary software, which then was again undone by the free open source software movement and, and the internet and the distribution of information at extremely low cost that then started to strike at Microsoft's proprietary software lead. And so once you started to have open hardware and open software, the next layer of proprietary aggregation was really the data layer. And that's what we live in right now, where Google, Apple, um, well, Apple less so, but Google, Facebook, Amazon, uh, Netflix, those are all either charging you directly for access to data or providing a proprietary service based on proprietary data. And so, and you know, crypto knows this well, um, the rest of culture is, is catching on to it, but they are data fief fiefdoms and we have no power within them and they have all of the leverage and data is their golden goose. And lo and behold, now we have another open standard in blockchains, which are like the microprocessor or like free open source software, which say, no, 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 this data is not a proprietary thing. It's open to the world, uh, goes directly at the golden goose of the web 2.0 incumbents. And so now we're asking ourselves, okay, what is the next level of value creation and where placeholder is concerned is how will this movement be captured once again by proprietary systems? Totally. And the line that will resonate out of that probably most impactfully with the listeners is that the business model of the web comes down to basically just getting a boatload of data, valuable data, and then monetizing and charging the users by placing ads and skimming transaction fees off the top and things like that. But that, all of these business models you guys talk about rely on the data being closed and propri proprietary. Um, so I'm curious, like how in your and Joel's view, or I don't know, just your view, how does DeFi change this? Like really tangibly, like what's going on with DeFi? Like, why are you excited about it? How do some yeah. of the early tools change, change this system? Sure. Well, so the base layer is Ethereum for DeFi, right? And so, um, that's the, the fundamental thing that can't be taken away where like a user's assets, um, and, and the, the custody, the creation, the transfer of the assets, they're all Ethereum based. And so if you look at things like Zerion or Instadap or, um, Zapier or whatever the interfaces are, some of them are custodial, some of them are non-custodial and we're more sympathetic to the non-custodial implementations. But regardless of, of whether they're custodial or non-custodial, it is very easy to move your assets between competitors, right, between interfaces. And what that does is that puts a competition on the interfaces, on the, the candy-coated service providers to treat the cu customer well. Whereas if I, in, in traditional finance, try and move from Fidelity to Schwab, that, that's a multi-week process, basically, where I have to fill out paperwork. Um, you know, I've got to probably mail that paperwork in or visit like a brick and mortar place. It takes time to you know, shut down the account. The transfer takes a week. And it's just, 
and and more than anything, it's just such a nightmare of a process that I've it had makes the same not, shitty bank account since I was eight since I was eighteen years old that I've right. desperately it's been on my to do list at the bottom to like change bank accounts for about fifteen years now. And yeah. uh, I doubt I'll exactly. ever do it because <laughs> it's, it's just such a pain. It's such yeah. a pain. Um and for me to switch from, you know, Instadap to Zerion requires a few transactions. Um, and for the non-custodial interfaces, you know, you can log into one and log into the other and just get a different view of the same assets. And so that really, like, placeholder is always focused on what elevates the consumer, what elevates the, the, the little guy. Because if you think about companies versus the consumer, like, the company is incentivized to extract as much profit as they can from the consumer and once they get to a scale like a Google or Facebook or whatever, they really don't give a shit about the consumer and they don't have to. Um, when you have a more balanced architecture, like what the, the base layer of open data with blockchains provides, then it, it really just keeps the companies in check and they can't exert these monopolistic or extractive forces on the consumer because it's so easy for the consumer to shift elsewhere. And so you, you just end up getting a better flywheel of behavior um, between the, the consumer and the interface. And then, you know, there are really, there's really interesting experimentation um, out there, like Nexo is, is an interesting example, um, where, you know, Nexo, you can get different rates in holding the, ne the Nexo asset. And if you think about it, in, in buying and holding the Nexo asset, you're helping to capitalize Nexo. Like you're decreasing their cost of capital. And so they can either provide you a service for cheaper or give you a higher yield. Um, and so like there, you as the consumer are actually directly helping to capitalize the service that you use. Um, and so that I think is, is a nice flywheel. I'm, I'm basically always looking for positive sum flywheels, right? Where it's like, okay, because we've interconnected people in this way, it just works better for everyone. So at, again, it's just at the base layer. Um, uh, it's, it's not don't be evil, it's can't be evil. Um, and that's really important. And then in terms of who's building um, on top of the base layer, we're seeing a mix of folks, right? There's like the true crypto natives or, or believers that are all about the unicorns and the rainbows. And I'm by and large, more sympathetic uh, to that crowd. Uh, like, I, I just want to live in that world. I want to live in that world where all the services are fun and are positive some. Um, there are, as crypto goes mainstream um, and attracts more talent from web to tech and existing finance, there are more, you know, let's call them sharky types um, that are in it for the extraction. And it is true that, like, you can build a very um, lucrative extractive system on top of Ethereum. Nothing precludes that from happening and that will happen um, in instances. And um, I focus a lot on token distribution because I think that's probably the biggest place where it's quietly happening. Um, and so it's not that uh, this, this technology will, um, only uh, be used for good, but it's more that the base layer keeps powers in check more than the base layer 
of the existing world does. And then we have a mix of personalities that are experimenting with, with what you can do with that base layer. All right, guys, it's ad time. I'm gonna let you guys in on a little secret. There's one company that's powering a ton of the crypto data in the space. And by crypto data, basically there's all these uh, companies, traditional financial institutions that need crypto data for you know accounting purposes, for tracking the value of their assets, for running audits, right? And so there's one company, they're called Luka, L-U-K-K-A. I've talked about them on the podcast before. They're powering some of the largest businesses in the world in both the crypto and traditional financial services space. They're the primary pricing source used by S&P Dow Jones indices for their new crypto index. So I want to uh, just throw this out there. If you guys are any sort of business that needs to value crypto assets, create financial statements, uh, perform any sort of normal accounting audit process, you guys should head on over. It's Luka, L-U-K-K-A, Luka.tech, L-U-K-K-A dot T-E-C-H forward slash empire, or just head over to Luka.tech forward slash empire. Tell them I sent you, they'll take care of you. Alrighty, let me know what you think. Can you break down the DeFi stack and talk about specifically, I'm curious, like where the value is actually accruing because there, there, are different, there are different layers to it, right? You have like the base layers, Ethereum, like you're talking about. Then you have things like maybe Compound or Aave or Uniswap. Then you have things like, um, I think it was Zerion that just raised $8 million today, which kind of is like an aggregator and plugs into all them. Then you have other like for-profits, like um, uh, what did Compound launch today? Compound Treasury today or yesterday, right. right? Which is like a for-profit built on top of an open source protocol. Compound, right. which is built on, you know, so like, where's the value going? What does the so, DeFi stack look like? So you, I could make it really complex, but I'm, I'm going to try and keep it simple as a visualization. Um, and I would say it's really uh, three layers. It's the, the base consensus and settlement layer, which is Ethereum. There's then what you could just very broadly call the middleware layer. Um, the, the, the middleware protocol layer, which are protocols that provide discrete services um, of you know a very vast array now. And so like Compound, Balancer, Uma, Uniswap, all these ones would be in that middleware um, protocol layer. So again, you've got the base layer protocol, the middleware protocols providing services. And then the third layer would be the aggregators, the interfaces, the companies that are basically consuming from the services of the middleware protocols and, and the base layer, which they consume as a, as a single package. They're consuming those services to provide a service to the end user. And so it's basically, instead of um, what, what it does for, if we just think of it as a company in that third layer, it, it decreases um, their costs, right? Because they're, they're outsourcing their CapEx and their OpEx to the uh, base layer and the middleware protocols. And so they're basically paying costs ad hoc as they need to provision services to the end user. They can either do that custodially, like Coinbase does, or non-custodially, like Xerion does. But because everyone uses the same shared infrastructure, because it operates on a global scale, and, and because it's such a competitive environment in the protocol layer, it should collapse all those costs down as much as possible. And then because in that third layer, the, the, um, 
like we were talking about earlier, because bad behavior is harder to get away with as a company, it also puts pressure on those companies to keep their margins thinner. And so at the end, the consumer wins, right? Because it's cheaper services through the protocol stack, it's thinner margins at the company layer, and that, that benefit should be passed to the end user and the consumer. Hmm. Uh, it's interesting to see it play out. I, you know, you had this, that 2018 article about, um, or paper about middleware protocols, yeah. uh, would take the most dominance. I think, I think you also added though, that if they could become cross chain, which we yeah. haven't seen as much, um, we're starting to see it like, cause we're finally getting to the place where there's enough layer ones for cross chain to make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's basically like the highest value, highest risk transactions are still staying on Ethereum, but then it's outsourcing to um, other less secure, but often faster or cheaper layer ones for, um, for the less valuable transactions. It's, it's not totally clear exactly how um, the multi-chain world is going to play out. It's clear that it will play out, um, just like in 2017, it was clear proof of stake was going to play out, but here we are in 2021 and proof of stake is being implemented across the board. Um, but yeah, that was a key, like it, um, early on for placeholder, we invested predominantly in the middleware protocols before we invested in ETH. We were also in the midst of, you know, 2018, 2019 massive descent and basically just watching for where we thought ETH would bottom. Um, but we invested in the middleware protocols first because we recognized um, those protocols can port to other chains. They can become multi-chain. Their, their flexibility is greater um, versus Ethereum. And so we went with them first when the period was highest risk, um, which is a little counterintuitive. And then we built um, large, large ETH positions um, once we felt it had bottomed and um and also, if, if you go back in time, like 17, 18, everyone was supposed to eat Ethereum's lunch. And then if you were watching the on-chain data, it was just clear that Ethereum was eating everyone else's lunch. Um, and so once we had more of the, the on-chain data to, to back up um, the uh, you know, at-scale Ethereum position, uh, we leaned heavily into Ethereum. Let's, uh, let's go back to 2017 because I'm curious about this. So... For those who were around in 2017, you'll remember like names like Filecoin and and uh, I forget when EOS did their big raise, but like e, like EOS and Filecoin and Cardano and IOTA and I don't have the right verbiage to say that it's it's not that they didn't work out. They the probably the adoption wasn't where they had hoped to be or isn't where they probably hoped it would be right now. Are today you see a lot of other base layers like I'll, I'll use Solana. Right, everyone's really excited about Solana right now. Is something like Solana just the new EOS, or is this? Are we going to live in a world where there's a lot of projects on Solana? Like, take take us out five to ten years. Yeah. Do we have a lot of projects on Solana? A lot of projects on Ethereum? There's cross chain compatibility, and they're working together. Or what does that world look like? Yeah. Well, so um, I feel like there are two questions in there. There's that world, and then there's also like the idea of raising lots of money. Um, and so let, let's start with the, what that world looks like. I, so just for starters, I don't think Solana is the next EOS. Um, I know Anatoly and Raj and um, 
that components of that team and it's it's a quality team i i don't agree with everything um but actually my my girlfriend um consulted at solana for a period last year the year before um i think it was last year and basically a conversation between us was wow solana looks really well positioned and um they're executing and teams that are well positioned and executing tend to do well in crypto. So while placeholder doesn't work with Solana, um, I, I do respect how they got through the bear market, um, how they've executed. I think that parts of, um, I think that just some of the raises on top of Solana, um, and I, I don't want to get into specifics, but some of the structurings and raises make me uncomfortable in terms of insider allocations. Um, and I would like to see basically a fire run through that ecosystem in the next bear market and flush out, you know, more of the sharky behavior and let like really earnest builders start again within Solana. I, I think there are some very earnest builders. The Orca um, team, one of their members is formerly from, from UMA and I speak with them. Um, on and off. And so there are good teams building quality tech and who value what Solana provides. So, so that's just a starter. Um, I think that if we look at the different layer ones, um, the layer ones most at risk of commoditization are the ones that are most similar to ETH because I, I see it as really hard to take on ETH at this point. And if you're really close to ETH and EVM compatible, you'll basically just become a, an Ethereum sidechain um, or an L2. And like, yeah, you might accrue like a couple hundred million dollars or a couple billion dollars, but like, it's not going to be that 10 or $100 billion um, long run success that I think a lot of these layer ones are going for. So I think those that are too close to Ethereum are, are at risk um, of commoditization. And this is where... I see like Solana being meaningfully differentiated. I see Cosmos as being meaningfully differentiated. Uh, we work with Polkadot, which is um, basically like a, a, a different, um, it's just a slightly different vision, right? And Polkadot's led by Gavin Wood, who wrote the Ethereum yellow paper and has, you know, uh, Vitalik has gotten more of the credit for Ethereum, Gavin got less, and Polkadot is, is um, Gavin's next next chance and he's doing well at it. If you if you step back and, and I'm just giving you a bunch of loosely organized information here, I had this conversation with Lane Retig, who I think is now at Space Mesh. Um, but he described, and I love this, um, he described Ethereum as China, uh, Polkadot as the United States, and Cosmos as the European Union. And and what he meant by that is like with Ethereum sharding, it's more homogenous, shared consensus, um, more more like China in the like, you know, we're all just going to do the same thing here and um, it, it will allow us to operate more quickly and more smoothly. Now, ZK rollups are going to change that a, a, a bit, but, um, you know, that is more Ethereum. Polkadot is more this federation of, of states with shared security, but they can have heterogeneous consensus. Um, and then Cosmos is the European Union, where it's you know these different nations loosely organized, not necessarily shared security, some economic benefits, um, 
but like a very emergent outcome. Now I'm, I'm super sympathetic to like the cosmos founders ethos and vision. And I really like the way that they think about this technology. Um, one of the struggles has been the value accrual of, of atoms. Um, and that too is, is being worked on. Um, some, some teams, um, we've, we've invested in a, in an entirely ZK based, um, smart contract architecture and, you know, this world is going to more and more go towards zero knowledge proofs. Um, and so, um, well, actually that's announced. Yeah. That's Elio, um, is a team that, that we work with, um, that's a bit further out. Um, but you start to get really interesting things there where you only have one prover who needs to run the contract. And so you can have infinite application runtime versus stressing the whole system by all miners having to run a contract and therefore basically stalling out a, a, a shared consensus system like Ethereum. Um, and then you go from the prover to, to a consensus system. But so Elio is very, very different. And then another one um, that I find intriguing is Agoric, which runs within Cosmos, but it's basically JavaScript-based development. Um, and the reason I find that super intriguing is much of Web2 is, is JavaScript-based. And like those engineers, they kind of, um, even though JavaScript was once upon a time looked down upon, a JavaScript engineer sometimes looks down upon solidity. And so if they just want to come into crypto and start building quickly in a language they know, then, then Agoric um, could be that solution. And it's very senior, um, uh, principled, well, well organized and executing team. And so like you have this tapestry of potential development environments, right? What I don't know. And, and, and then from there, you basically have interoperability of state and of value. Um, and so you've got, of course, like Thorchain, which is going after the interoperability of value. Um, the interoperability of state is trickier. Um, it doesn't seem to me that the, the custom built bridges is the right idea. It's too one off, right? It's like this bridge for this and this bridge for that. And it just feels like a mess. And so you've got teams like Axelar, um, which are building like a meta layer of, of consensus for state and value. And it does feel like there, there could be that, that meta layer. Um, the ZK sync team could build a ZK based, um, meta layer, like basically think of it as a layer two across all chains, um, that they want to integrate with. And I think we converge on something like that. That will be another centralizing and value accruing um, place. Um, but yeah, so like to just try and sum it all up, I think that you have big winners clearly like Bitcoin and Ethereum and a handful of others that are able to meaningfully differentiate at the layer one. You have um, consolidating layers for interoperability of value and state. Um, and then you have um, the middleware protocols probably operating off of that consolidating layer, although uh, I'm not totally clear whether they would be beneath or, or above. And then on top of that, you have the interfaces. Hmm. Uh, in most markets right now, you have like New York, uh, there's like winner take all or winner take most or one or two that kind of dominate the market. Like 
Uh, what are some examples? Like in, in, in markets, you have New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ, right? And like ride sharing, you have Uber and Lyft. In mobile phones, you have iPhone and Android, right? And I'm sure we could go on. Do you think the future of middleware looks like, looks similar? Like you have, I don't know, you, Aave and Compound. Yeah. I, I don't know who your portfolio companies are really, but like, I'm sure we want to plug right. those. Uniswap like, and Balancer. There you Uniswap and Balancer, so... I think that the the setup here, given the competitive forces that the technology enables, is for this to be um, less. Well, it really depends on the layer, um, but like generally, I lean towards these being less monopolistic service providers than in the existing world, and so that would suggest that there's more room for more players um, now where you could argue against that is because these protocols get global scale. Um, and, and what's really key is the liquidity of different kinds. Like you can think of basically the number of supply siders is the liquidity, um, of, of, a, of a service. So like Uber has great liquidity, right. And, and that's how it's continued to just do, do well. Um, and so that's where right now you have Uniswap, that's dominating pretty handily um, on the AMM front. Um, and so we'll have to see where that goes. But the thing is, like, at least with the stage that we're currently at, um, the underlying tech and engineering of these systems is changing so much that a team has to keep up. And so this is where it starts to be really key, like, what is the organization of the team? And also, what is the organization of the community? And like, if you are just a centralized team working at a breakneck pace and not outsourcing enough to your community, you're going to start to burn out. And that's where I think like we've seen some examples of it, but I like this is more a marathon that is a game of attrition rather than like these single instance in time victories. I, I think people think a little bit too much in terms of, oh, this team won. Actually, a great example would be Chainlink, where people, like the Link Marines are like, "Oh, uh, Link won the Oracle War. Like, don't even try," you know. And it's like, well, pride often comes before the fall, and so if you're thinking that way, you're probably getting complacent, um, and um, that then opens up opportunity for another competitor. Yeah, um, there's one thing that you really wanted to talk about that. I read about in your, uh, what, was, what was the title? Blank Slate of State paper, which is just crypto creating a more fair financial system. And even at the beginning of this podcast, I, you know, you were, you mentioned that like, you don't let you you know, you, you lead a VC firm, but you're not a financier. Right. And like, I've, I've just heard you bring it up in your papers and on podcasts and, and it's clearly something that you're passionate about the fact that you know finance, you, you do work in finance, but like you're doing this because you genuinely think the world will be a better place. Am I yeah. reading into this right? Like what am I, what, what am I trying you to are. get at here? I mean, some of it is my own internal conflict of struggling with the idea of working in finance, even though um, <laughs> I, I, for a long time, so rebelled against it. I think it's, it's, it's probably summed up by our governance researcher, Mario, so Keynes had a line which was um, you had to euthanize the rentier, basically kill the rent seeker. And um, 
Mario's spin on it is if you're not going to euthanize the rentier, then you need to make everyone a rentier. Um, or, or put another way is allow everyone to be an investor, right? Like, uh, oh, it's like we live in a, in a capitalist world. So at least if we're going to agree to this capitalist world, just put capitalism in everyone's hands, in, put no. capital in everyone's hands, yeah, full stop. Yeah. Um, and capitalism is designed such that capital grows, right? That's like the, maybe the single most core tenant of capitalism is that capital needs to keep growing. Um, and if that's the case, and this is where the meme of like stocks only go up or crypto only goes up because it is true. Capital only grows over time. The money, the, the money base inflates to then as a unit of account, continue to accommodate, um, the, the growing units of capital. And if that is all the case, then we need to put capital in everyone's hands and everyone needs to become an investor and it needs to stop being like this scary thing, um, or this, you know, sharky thing and more a fun thing of like, yeah, I play Axie infinity. So I hold AXS, you know, or whatever it, it, it might be. And, um, that's more the world I want to live in where um, finance is not even really thought of as finance, where it's really just people accruing value um, to be liberated in the ways that they want to be liberated um, and to not have this major imbalance between those who are in capital, which are the minority, versus those who are not in capital, which frustratingly is the majority right now. How do DAOs tie into this goal of making sure that the next generation of capital doesn't result in the same outcomes as the past 19th yeah. and 20th centuries? Well, it, as, as we exchange in our correspondence, I do have fears that like crypto is new tech, but same old mistakes. Um, and, and so I, I saw you tweet something on Twitter. It was like, I think it was morning brew was like, what's your four words about your fear of your industry. You're like new tech, same mistakes. So <laughs> yeah. And, and I would say like majority odds that happens. Like we're, we're creatures of habit. And if we behave in the same ways and we're very competitive and we're unequal in how we distribute tokens, then we'll end up with the same um, poorly distributed, um, imbalanced power systems that we have today. But um, DAOs, like the most exciting DAOs to me, are often the ones that don't include investors at the start. Um, so like Yearn, Decred is a good example of this. Decred never raised um, venture funding and basically just started minting, similar to Bitcoin, and minting into their treasury, which then funds contractors that, that apply. But what I love about DAOs is like abstractly a DAO can do anything a company can. Like it's just an, an organizational construct. Um, but it is a much more open one, whereas companies tend to be more proprietary. It is much flatter, whereas companies tend to be more, more hierarchical. Now it doesn't have, that, that doesn't mean it has to be, you know, perfectly flat. Like there still will, we are still a hierarchical species, but it's just flattening the hierarchy a bit. And, and one way to think of DAOs is they, they open up marketplaces for labor, global marketplaces for labor, where um, anyone can come in with a good idea and apply to do work. 
and you don't have to live in a country, you don't have to know somebody, you, there's no prerequisite for access. It is open access, and if you are capable of generating the idea and doing the work, then you can win that, that um, grant or that contract, um, do the work. If you do it well, then rinse, wash, and repeat. And so um, I think that that is the necessary organizational construct for a 21st century that's digital native, globally based, increasingly remote work. Um, and like more and more, I'm seeing people, and, and this includes myself, like, yeah, I, like, I'm a personality within crypto, but like, I try and spend just as much time outside of crypto as in crypto. Like, I probably identify more than anything else as a surfer. Um, and that's like where I really love being. And I enjoy crypto and my mind is stimulated by it. And I really like the team at Placeholder and I like supporting the people that are entrepreneurs, but um, I'm not wholly defined by my, my, by my profession. And I think that's like right now, actually the world is, at least for the last while, it's been imbalanced in its obsession on, on profession. And, you know, sometimes you do have to do it. Like when I was at ARC, those were like 14 plus hour days. Like those were really long days. And like sometimes you have to lay the groundwork and you get an opportunity and you just go for it entirely. And I respect that too. But there's, it's just all about balance um, for you in the stage of life that you're in. And I think that DAOs open up this more flexible context to work and achieve balance, um, both within yourself, but also uh, within the organization. How do you trust though? Like everyone is democratic until they get power and then power yeah. corrupts, right? So like, yeah. I, I guess I, I love the concept of a DAO and I love the concept of DeFi, but my two biggest concerns, let's start with the DAO, is that like, are we just trusting these big, or DAOs aside, like, are we just trusting these big, like, I don't have the right word, but like DeFi DAO CEOs, like, like Hayden or Robert or Stanny, that like, they'll decentralize and that they'll give away power. So that's, I'll stop there. Like, that's, are we just trusting them? It really depends on the genesis of the DAO. Not all DAOs are equal, right? So like, this is where for me, the gold standard of how a DAO was started is still Decred. Um, and it's, that's like, Decred is kind of on the fringe to Ethereum folks, but like Decred, um, there was no like, uh, so if you look at Decred's distribution, 10% um, goes to the network treasury, which capitalizes the DAO, 30% goes to stakers, who, who govern basically the resource allocation and participate in consensus. And then 60% goes to the miners. There was a 4% um, airdrop early on of Decred's total supply um, to a combination of anyone who signed up globally for the airdrop and then the uh, development team, Company Zero. And so that was extremely well distributed, right? And it's just been minted out over time. And if you're there participating, you're accruing the asset. And so you contrast that with a lot of DAOs now where, you know, 20, 30, 40, God forbid, 50% plus is taken by insiders. And like, for me, the second you're over majority allocation to insiders, like you've blown it. Like, you know, you, you treated this like a company, you probably prioritize your investors 
and your founding team more than you prioritize the founding of, uh, of, of crypto. And, you know, the vision for me, despite the words and pretty marketing is like, you know, is, is, is not aligned with what I'm here to do with crypto. And then it's basically scales of like 20% insider allocation, 30%, 40%. And it, you know, I think Uniswap is 40% insider. Placeholders more targeting 25, 33% insider allocation. And that's basically at, at 25%, outsiders are getting 3x what insiders are getting out the gate. At when you say insiders, Chris, sorry, just yeah. to make sure everyone understands, are, are these like early VC, are these VCs, investors, angels, founding team, basically? It's basically everyone who gets access. You can basically, you could also think of it as private public, everyone who gets access at the private stage. So, so yeah, it is the investors, it's the advisors, it's the founding team, everyone who is able to get allocations before there was a public launch. Um, so in the case of Solana, which did a private launch after they were already public, like they, what, right. what they raised, 314 million, are, are the, is the 314 million, would you consider those to be insiders or no? Yes. Got it. Yeah. Got because it. you only got that through private access. And now, you discount to the market. Yeah. Now, it's, it's complicated at the same time because regulators have made it tougher to distribute, like what Ethereum did in like a, a public sale it can never you happen now. It wouldn't yeah. fly. And so that's a frustrating component of all of this where like teams, some teams are just trying to stay within the limits of the law. Other teams are, I would say, taking advantage of the situation to, you know, allocate as much to themselves and their investors as possible. Um, but like all, everyone does have like the SEC and a, a regulator in their mind and they are incentivized to distribute at the early stage to private access capital. Um, and then, you know, later find creative ways to distribute out to the community and to the public. And so weirdly, the regulator is favoring the insider. Brad from Placeholder has a great line and it might come from someone else, but which is, um, and it takes a while to wrap your head around, but, um, Regulators are responsible for propagating the problem for which they are the solution. Um, and Regulators are responsible for propagating the problem for which they are the solution. Yeah. And it's, it's like a really demoralizing <laughs> line because it's like, you know, a regulator is not, I don't demonize regulators. Like they're public servants. Um, they're a little bit lost in the machine of Moloch, but like, they're trying to do a good job. They could make more money in the private industry. They are trying to protect citizens by and large, but we end up getting these sideways outcomes. Um, now, alongside that, you have lobbyists, right, from the private sector who are then putting pressure on the outcomes that they want. And this is where I, I basically just think Web 2 and traditional finance is so captured, is such a mess that we just have to entirely start over. And Bitcoin or Bitcoin and crypto is that blank slate um, of blank slate of state where we get to totally start over? We get to rewrite new rules. Um, they are unstoppable. There will be clashes with regulators. We get to decide. Like in crypto, the protocols have home field advantage against the regulator. So like we get to decide what rules we will abide by, 
Um, it's really the regulatory enforcement will happen at the interface layer. It's going to be fascinating to see how regulators try to regulate protocols because that's going to be very hard. Um, but but it's it's a once in a millennia opportunity because it's it's like when people were moving out west, except we are moving into these infinite digital lands where we get to totally rewrite the rules. And that's where I feel probably the greatest urgency I feel is to make sure that we're thinking through things, thinking and feeling through things from as many perspectives as possible to design as equitable and fair and open a world as possible. And what tortures me is instead of all of those conversations happening, the predominant conversations, at least you know, on Twitter and social platforms, which are not great places for these conversations, the predominant conversation is number go up and look how, how much money? money I made. Yeah. yeah, how do you make money? And it's a competition, right? It's, it's less collaborative and it's more of a competition. And I see this in the fund landscape too, where like the funds are all competing and, you know, it's a, and especially as you get these bigger and bigger funds, you know, you need to take larger and larger stakes to justify those bigger and bigger funds. It becomes more competitive. It's about creating the empire of the fund. Whereas for me, like placeholder is a placeholder. We eventually disappear. I do not want to create an empire. And I actually want to help create the most equitable systems possible, um, distribute it out widely. Yes, placeholder and myself will make money in doing so, but I will only have done a good job if I lifted far more boats than myself and I'm, I'm not in it for the competition. What do you mean placeholder will, will disappear? Well, we're, I mean, well, eventually placeholder will disappear because I'll die, Joel will die. Um, but Joel and I go yeah, from Yeah, but eventually, like, Mark Andreessen dies and Ben Horowitz dies, and I can assure you Andreessen, Andreessen Horowitz continues. lives on. Yeah. I don't think we, Joel and I have similar aspirations as Andreessen and Horowitz. Um, I think Joel and I um, want to live very balanced, full, multivariable lives, and we're good at doing this right now and we enjoy doing it right now and we go fund by fund. Um, but we're a very small team, placeholder six people, um, we're super boutique, close relationships with our entrepreneurs. We don't do all that many deals um, because we wanna preserve as much time as possible to, to work with the existing portfolio networks. And um, yeah, I really do not wanna build a machine because if I build a machine, I get trapped in the machine. Yeah. And um, the most important thing for me is is freedom. Yeah. When does this uh, this whole thing become less about the global metaverse casino that we've built and and more about games and use cases and users and people and 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 less and and the DAOs and like what we're able to create and less about the casino? Or do you think that's just speculations necessary to bring capital in, which brings entrepreneurs in, which brings builders in? So speculation is necessary. I guess those like, are two different questions. Those are mutually exclusive, yeah, actually. Yeah, those, so speculation is necessary, but we, so, so Axie is on everyone's mind right now, right? With yeah. how AXS has been performing. And we don't work with them, but I have a lot of respect for that team. Um, I think they're doing a great job. And I think that's an early example. Um, and you also have Yield Guild Group, which is basically kind of like a layer on top of Axie, where um, Yield Guild Group um, trains 
they set up communities for laborers to teach each other basically how to earn yield. Um, and so what you're starting to see there, and, and this is one of my long-term goals for crypto, is a global minimum wage that is higher than anyone that is in a developing nation could access. And so that is, again, like an equalizing force. And if you look at some of the commentary around Axie and why it's so powerful is, you know, in the Philippines, people are er earning multiples of what they could in the physical space playing this quote unquote silly game. It's amazing. And yeah, yeah it, it's, it's really awesome. cool to see. And so I think we will get more both within the creator economy, but also the gaming economy. We're going to get more and more systems that are set up like this, where basically you can labor to create scarce resources. As you create those scarce resources, they live on a blockchain. You can sell them. You then start earning a minimum wage or a wage that is higher than the, the wage you could earn in your, your physical space. And so long as you're able to also attract um, you know, higher dollar players or purchasers who are willing to buy those resources, then you can start to create this flywheel because the scarce resource has to be created through labor, but someone else can buy it, right? Once it's created and that's the small love potions um, yeah. on, on Axie. And then from there that then creates the other scarce resources like Axies and, and, and that kind of stuff. And so you're still, you're still hijacking um, like the top dollar players competitive spirit in a way, right? Where they want to own the scarce axes or, you know, whatever. Like I think of life for, for those that are driven by competition and there will always be lots of people driven by competition. It's just a bunch of leaderboards. Like everywhere I look, I see leaderboards of like leaderboards of finance or leaderboards of homeownership or leaderboards of cars, or it's all the type of leaderboard. And so if you can take that leaderboard energy, but use it, um, to basically empower and spread more wealth to the people that are helping to create the systems for those that are obsessed with the leaderboard, then you start to bring everyone closer together. Um, and so that is at least a better design than, than our current systems. Um, and, and we're going to be getting more and more of that. I mean, Ethereum's fees have to drop. We've talked about Solana and um, Polkadot and Cosmos and like all those um, are going to be building out or on top of them, there will be cheaper, more interesting services that will be provided. There are more UX designers and marketers coming in. And so the ingredients are there. I would say, you know, I'd be like the 2020s is the time for this to happen. I would be shocked and sad if by 2030 we were still just like in this DeFi casino. I know that like placeholder, for example, like we've built a we built a great DeFi portfolio through 18, 19, 20. But like now Joel and I are kind of bored of DeFi. I mean, we 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 work with the big winners um, from our portfolio and those problems, those deep, interesting problems and supporting those teams and communities are, are interesting to us. But I'm not really looking to back more at the margin DeFi projects. I'm more looking to work with DAOs or creators or um, games like Axie um, and really focus. For me, I'm focused more and more on the environmental problems and the wage problems. Um, and so teams that can help solve those are grabbing my interest. And so, and that's also an indicator of like where the capital goes is also going to start to fund more and more experiments 
um, in a particular direction. Got it. Got it. I promised I would uh, end this by 4 p.m. So we're near, nearing an hour and a half and uh, I need to let you go get surfing for the day. So I'm going to wrap this up. Full. With, yeah, it's been a great conversation. I'm going to wrap this up with one question that I ask everybody and then you can flip the interview and ask me one question if your heart desires. Um, what is one thing that is keeping you up at night, crypto or non-crypto related, that you think someone in the audience or someone listening right now might be able to help you with either tangibly or just help you think through a conversation? What's one thing that's keeping you up at night? So I'd say it's encapsulated in, in the original sin piece that I wrote, which is just, I've, I've got an inside look at so, so much of how crypto networks are created. Um, and there's a lot that happens at the private stage that is obfuscated. And so, some of it is for regulatory reasons, but some of it is because people at the inside stage don't have an interest in revealing what happens at the inside stage. And so for, for me, the thing that keeps me up at night is the early unequal distribution of the assets within crypto networks and um, in a space that should de-emphasize investors or make everyone an investor. That means that professional investors need to take a step back. Um, and so, but I think really that that's not going to come from the professional investors. It has to come from a unified front of the entrepreneur saying, no, um, you know, we want investors to take less and we want to distribute more to our communities. Um, and if that doesn't happen, crypto will still succeed. It will still be fine. It will just be a little bit less potent in its redistribution of wealth and power than it could be. Awesome. My question for you is, um, what is the, the most fulfilling and most tiring part of having founded and, and running BlockWorks? Mm. I, think, I think just like so many things in life, the same thing that you, I don't know, I went on this trip to Israel uh, when I was 22 and there was this uh, Orthodox rabbi and he said, you know, I was with my, this college girlfriend at the time and he said, I was telling him about her, he said, the same thing that you love about her, the same quality is also the same quality that upsets you and annoys you, right? <laughs> and so I think I can tie that story back from this Rabbi Shua, was his name, back to the company, which is by far the most rewarding thing about the business is hiring people and seeing people come together and going out to team dinners and going bowling with the team and having these amazing conversations over Zoom or even Slack uh, and just and just seeing the team grow and seeing the relationships that form because of the company. And by far the most exhausting thing is, is managing and making sure that those relationships <laughs> form and making sure that people are happy. So Right, right. Yeah. And managing conflict when it inevitably arises. Every day, every day. Yeah. <laughs> well, so. you're doing a great job. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to watch BlockWorks grow. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Jason. All right. Bye.